This program is brought to you by Resonance 104.4 FM. If you like what you hear and want to support our work, please make a donation at fundraiser.resonance.fm. Hello, and welcome to Suite 212 here on Resonance 104.4 FM, London's most innovative, inventive, and intelligent radio station. I'm your host, Juliet Jakes, and this month, I'm joined by two guests who will help me to make sense of a disparate group of experimental authors, and a word I use advisedly, who were kicking against the formal conservatism, and to some extent the political conservatism of post-war Britain, a subject on which all three of us have written extensively. Jonathan Coe is the author of 11 novels, the first of which, An Accidental Woman, came out in 1987. His breakthrough hit What a Carve-Up was published by Penguin in 1994. An ambitious work that borrowed devices from old comedy and horror films, including the one that provided its title, into a searing attack on Thatcherite values, What a Carve-Up launched him onto the international stage and remains one of my favourite novels of the last few decades. Jonathan has won several literary awards in the UK and France, including the Samuel Johnson Prize for non-fiction in 2005, his fantastic book, Like a Fiery Elephant, the story of B.S. Johnson, published the year before, a biography of the post-war English writer and filmmaker who was famous for his strident belief in literary innovation, but also for his frequent excursions into primetime television, a tension between the underground and the mainstream that will be central to today's discussion. Jennifer Hodgson is a writer, critic and rogue academic, whose work has appeared in The Guardian, The White Review, The New Statesman, The Review of Contemporary Fiction, and a variety of other publications. She's also been the writer-in-residence at the Edinburgh International Book Festival and the UK editor with Dorky Archive Press, an American-based publisher of avant-garde literature, including some of the works that we'll be talking about. She's also the editor of The Unmapped Country, which brings together a number of lost short stories and fragments by Anne Quinn, a Brighton-based author best known for the four novels she published between 1964 and her death in 1973, a few months before that of B.S. Johnson. That's just been uh, released on And Other Stories, one of many radical publishers that has emerged in Britain over the last 10 years to reinvigorate a literary scene that, in the 21st century, as in the decades after the Second World War, had felt somewhat stagnant. Jonathan Jennifer, welcome to the show. Before we uh, launch into today's discussion, before we launch into today's discussion, I must mention the Resonance One Hundred Four Point Four FM fundraiser, which runs from Saturday the third of February until Sunday the eleventh. Resonance is a non-profit radio station that's given voice to so many of London's artists, musicians, and political movements, producing a diverse range of programmes, unlike those found anywhere else on British radio, uh, including, I like to think, Sweet Two One Two which is aiming towards an in-depth analysis of art and artists and their social, historical and political contexts at a time when cuts to print and broadcasting budgets had left, led to a dearth of coverage of anything far beyond what is obviously profitable. This year we're hoping to raise £100,000. There are a number of events, including gigs by This, this Is Not This Heat, Bob and Roberta Smith, Soviet France and the comedian Scott Capuro, 
as well as auctions of numerous items, including a rare original Velvet Underground and Nico LP, which I have to admit I'd quite like. If you'd like to help, please go to fundraiser.resonance.fm to find out how you can donate or get involved. With that out of the way, it's on with the show. Uh, I feel we should launch into the show, um, partly by talking about um, the other book on kind of British, what I'm going to call neo-modernist writing um, by uh, one of our panel here today. And that's my own work on Rainer Heppenstall, a novelist and critic uh, and criminological writer from Huddersfield, who was about 20 years older than B.S. Johnson and Quinn, who I've already mentioned, and was something of a spiritual forefather to the circle of writers we're going to be talking about. Um, his novel, The Blaze of Noon, uh, his first novel, was published in 1939. It links him with D.H. Lawrence insofar as, like Lady Chatterley's lover, it was sort of initially attacked for obscenity. There was an attempt to ban it. There was a very angry article in the Evening Standard which called it a story of poultry yard morals. Um, and it was a very, very unusual novel for late 1930s British literary culture in that it was very, very inward-looking, very introspective. It quite consciously took up the principle that the exterior narrative had been taken up by by film and that he felt that prose writing should do well to be more kind of lyrical and more inward. And Heppenstall's novels published during the war or uh, written during the war and published afterwards, um, Saturnine, which came out in 1943, and The Lesser in Fortune, which was largely written in the mid to late 1940s, but only published in 1953. Um took a very sort of inward approach to the war itself, taking Heppenstall's own experiences in the Second World War uh, and producing so they looked much more at the sort of collapse of a man's consciousness than at the collapse of the, the world around him. Um, 1953 is a very uh, crucial date for us here, actually. Um, 1953 was a sort of year of the emergence of a, a new generation of, of largely but not entirely working-class writers um, it sort of came together under the rubric of the angry young men. Um, people like Kingsley Amis uh, emerged at this point. And um, also the, the Nouveau Roman in France uh, became increasingly visible as well by the, by the early 50s. The Nouveau Roman or the anti-novel was a sort of loosely constituted collection of, um, of authors, all of whom were perceived to be doing something interesting with the representation of consciousness uh with the structure of the novel in post-war france people like natalie Thorot, alain rob grier claude simon marguerite durat um who are all just sort of constituted into this loose nouveau roman circle by the french press um in britain uh there were very very concrete attempts during the 60s in particular and early 70s to constitute a similar circle of authors. And um, the last B.S. Johnson book, um, Aren't You Rather Young to Be Publishing Your Memoirs, which Johnson um, completed shortly before his death at the age of 40 in 1973, um, that famously includes a list of, of writers that Johnson felt were writing as though it mattered, as though they meant it to matter. I'm going to read the list in full because I think it sets the tone for our discussion quite interestingly. He says, Perhaps I should nod here to Samuel Beckett, brackets, of course, John Berger, Christine Brooke Rose, 
Bridget Brophy, Anthony Burgess, Alan Burns, Angela Carter, Ava Fiege, Giles Gordon, Wilson Harris, Raina Heppenstall, even hasty muddled Robert Nye, Anne Quinn, Penelope Shuttle, Alan Silito, brackets for his last book only, Raw Material Indeed, Stephen Themerson and brackets coming, John Weway, brackets stand by, and if only Heathcote Williams could write a novel. And Johnson says anyone who imagines himself or herself slighted by not being included above can fill in his or her name here. It would be a courtesy, however, to let me know his or her qualifications for so imagining. Are we concerned with courtesy? Now, this is a really interesting list. I think some of them are people that Johnson wanted to associate himself with, particularly Samuel Beckett. Some of them are people who remain well-known as novelists. Um, I'm thinking Angela Carter and Anthony Burgess in particular. Um, most of them aren't. Uh, some of them are people that even I don't know. I, I know nothing of Wilson Harris's work. I don't know anything of Robert M Nye, let alone what made him hasty and muddled. Um, and uh, I, I know nothing of John Weway, for example, not even how his name is pronounced. Um, and then some of them are people that I've read through kind of rooting through for, uh, for what I feel were sort of interesting uh, British experimental authors that felt like people who could be inspirations to my own writing work. And I'm sure that's... That's true for both of you. Um, you know, there are also some notable absentees for this list. I'm thinking of uh, Anna Cavan, whose, um, whose novel Ice remains one of the more widely read uh, to have come out of this sort of post-war uh, culture. Um, Paul Abelman, whose novel I Hear Voices sort of tries to look at the world from the point of view of a schizophrenic man. It's published by uh, Maurice Girodi at his Olympia Press. Um, Nicholas Mosley, of course, um, who uh, is a particularly interesting personification of the attempts to sort of write against the fascist links of kind of interwar high modernism. Um, Alexander Trotchy, who had some links to the Situationist group. Um, and you could fill all of those into that uh, space in Johnson's list if you, uh, if you wanted to. Um, so I wondered if we could uh, talk about... Um, you know how far we can talk about this set of authors as a sort of coherent circle of um, of kind of quote unquote experimental writers. Um, how successful was Johnson in getting these people together, partly as a movement in the public consciousness, but partly as just a group of people who were kind of interacting with each other professionally and personally. And maybe maybe that's a good starting point for for our conversation. I think the fact that this list which Johnson probably just kind of dashed off late one night while he was finishing his introduction <laughs> and, uh, you know, it was the first 10 or 15 names that came into his head. I think the fact that it's become so important and is so often quoted and has become the kind of canon, really, when we, when we talk about this group of writers, uh, shows how loose and unofficial it was in the first place because nobody had really drawn up a list like this before. Uh, you mentioned that uh, you know the phrase uh, nouveau roman was was actually coined by French critics and was 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 invented as a, as a label to describe a group of writers who they identified. Uh, but that's one of the things that this circle, if that's what we're going to call them, of writers was lacking. Actually, was it was any kind of um, I mean, individually they met with a lot of critical hostility, mm -hmm. novel novel by novel. They would uh, they would get reviews which were not just. Uh, you know, attacks on the books they'd written, but attacks on their 
they're very aesthetic for choosing to write in this way. And uh, with the exception, I suppose, of critics like David Lodge and Bernard Bergonzi, who, who began to write a little bit in more general terms about the sort of movement that they represented, there was no, there, were, there was never, as far as I know, any newspaper article, for instance, a single newspaper article which brought them together as a group. And Not said, in Look, England. This is. There was in uh, in France, Helen Sixou in 1967, but yeah, in the UK. Yeah, she yeah. called them the British Nouveau Roman. Yeah, but the article only appeared as the founder. Yeah, the article only appeared in, Fra in in French, so obviously none of us English people are aware of it. And how did <laughs> and who did she who did she mention apart from uh, Heppenstall? Uh, she mentioned uh, B.S. Johnson. She mentioned oh, Anne right, Quinn, okay. I believe. Um, yeah, it was fairly close to the list that uh, I think Christine Britt Rose is in there as yeah, well. Yeah, yeah, it was fairly close to B.S. Johnson's list, and she yeah she called them the British Nouveau Roman, but obviously. That article was never read over here. <laughs> yeah. Well, he was very exercised by the fact that he felt more, even though he, his books weren't translated into French during his lifetime, he felt uh, when he went there uh, to present his films and this kind of thing, he felt more appreciated and more understood mm. uh, in France, and particularly in Hungary, where, his, where mm. he, he was uh, quite a well-known literary figure and, uh, you know, was... He was a great complainer, and one of his uh, one of his regular complaints was that there was more, just kind of critical understanding abroad of what people like him were trying to do. Yeah, interestingly, uh, I lived in Hungary for a time, and there's a very small um, English language library in Budapest, and um, which has which has far more of these books by Johnson, by Quinn, by Christian Book Rose than in any library I've ever seen in the UK in Hungary in mm. English. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. So maybe we can we can expand a bit further on um, on the context in which they were writing in um, the the biggest and most thorough um, you know post facto critical study of these writers and a sort of attempt to explore them as a sort of a group rather than as individuals is uh, a book that I'm holding in my hand called Amongst Those Left, the With British Experimental I, I would say. Novel, <laughs> 1940 to nineteen eighty, And it is quite difficult to hold because it's really big. It's, it's uh, a hefty term. It's 700 yeah. pages and uh, they're big pages as well with quite small print. So there's a lot of info here. Um, if that makes it sound rather intimidating, um, Booth writes a very interesting sort of 50-page introduction outlining the cultural context in which they worked. Uh, and then there are, you know, sort of on average sort of 40, 50-page studies of various writers, so a lot of the ones we've just mentioned, but also people that, that I don't necessarily know, Jeff Nuttall, Rosalind Belbin, and then a section called Fellow Travellers, where he names uh, Stevie Smith, who I think still has still has a readership, um, Philip Toynbee, um, a number of writers I don't know, Peter Redgrove, George Macbeth, Emma Tennant, and then New Wave Science Fiction, including... Uh, a few pages on J.G. Ballard, who is a very interesting outrider to this kind of culture. Uh, but he talks about the few innovative writers in Britain being discussed and being treated in a vacuum and not part of any trend, mm. not being related to any tradition or contemporaries. Uh, and I think that's really interesting as well. So maybe we should we should move from there. Um, I've already sort of talked about Rainer Heppenstall as one of the few figures here who straddles the sort of period back to the end of interwar modernism and the Second World War. But maybe we can talk here a bit more about the political and aesthetic context in which they're working. Um, and I don't know if, if either of you had any sort of opening thoughts on that. Uh, I, just on the... On the um 
On the idea of there being a kind of generation before, I mean, you've mentioned already someone like Anna Kavan. And uh, I think what what is often forgotten is there there was this um there was this this moment where late mo- like well late modernism kind of went rogue and there were there were figures like uh, Anna Kavan and then people like Ivy Compton Burnett and Henry Green and Elizabeth Bowen who were doing who were who were innovating in ways that were not so very far away from what came after during the 60s but that link that kind of um way in which um these writers aren't just strange anomalies outliers but are part of a kind of hidden and neglected tradition but a tradition nonetheless of of interesting kind of um uh, phenomenologically engaged if you like uh writing in britain is often forgotten you know they, they, there's a there's a tradition there there's there's some continuity definitely yeah um if i might bring uh booth back in for a second um booth writes very interestingly about that that bridge between the 30s and the sort of early 60s and he talks about yeah Anna Kavan um but also Lawrence Jarrell um mm. Henry Green uh, as a notable antecedent um his novel Court which is one of the more highly regarded British kind of novels of the 40s I think amongst critical circles mm. um happens to all himself but uh Booth sort of highlights 1953 as a year, which he says, which seems to be when many novelists went through some sort of crisis. Um, and he talks about sort of Philip Toynbee writing experimental novels up until 1953, uh, when he began to publish novels in verse. Rosamund Lehman, who, Jonathan, I think you're, you're a fan a great of. Great admirer of, yeah. Yeah, uh, and she published no new novels uh, after between 1953 and 1978. Yeah, I think Echoing Grove was, was the last one. Mm. And yeah. Rainer Happenstall um, didn't publish any novels between 1953 and 1962. Um, and um, uh, John Lehman, I'm not sure if there's any relation, but... Um, brother. Yep. Brother, right, okay. So John Lehman himself saw Dylan Thomas's death in 1953 as sort of beginning a change of mood and intention in contemporary English poetry. And uh, in his memoir, Four Absentees, um, Happenstall talks about his friendships um with with george orwell eric gill mm. the critic john middleton murray but also dylan thomas who was the last of that group to die i think i might be wrong on that mm-hmm. but there's a sense in in happenstall that dylan thomas's death is very very significant um but also in 1953 that's when the angry young men really emerged john wayne publishes hurry on down the following year you get lucky jim by kingsley amos and under the net by iris murdoch all revivals of the picaresque mode, although, as Booth points out, Rainer Heppenstall revived that in the early 40s, but people weren't really paying Didn't attention notice, because yeah. there was a war <laughs> on, yeah. uh, amongst other things. Um, Colin Wilson's The Outsider comes out shortly after. It's, of course, not a novel, but it's essential mm-hmm. to the ethos of the angry generation. So there's the emergence. Then, in, you know, 1956, you get John Osborne's Look Back in Anger. Alan Silito's, um Saturday Night and Sat- uh, Sunday Morning comes out shortly after. John Brain's Room at the Top, David's Story is This Sporting Life. Um, and there's an emergence of this like very working-class literature that is formally, you know, not kind of... Groundbreaking. Yeah, not yeah. groundbreaking, or not deliberately groundbreaking. Yeah. It's not mm. aiming to do that in the same way that um, some of these other authors we're talking about. Mm. Um, so maybe that's an interesting um, lead into a conversation about the kind of the class composition of... British literature after the war. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. I think um uh back when I was uh 
when I was sitting in a cupboard as a researcher, when you're reading the um, the kind of periodicals and little magazines of the time, um, you do get this sense of British literary intellectuals in crisis. I think it's kind of, you get it, um, 1953 is a really interesting uh, kind of date to choose because, you know, you would expect this to happen in the immediate post-war period. But there was mm. this kind of time lag, I think, where the crisis hit in about 53, mm. where, you know, when you read when you read Horizon or the writings of Cyril Connolly or whatever, there's this sense of, um, I think at the time it was kind of, uh, called closing time at the gardens. Like, what what do we do now? The world has changed irrevocably, um, and what's going to happen next? Kind of uh, modern modernism has been has been kind of um, with its its perceived alliance with kind of fascism, and or at best, its kind of intellectual decadence isn't going to be suited for this like brave new world that we're encountering. What's going to happen next? And there was they, they really had the jitters, you know. They really really had the jitters, and this this kind of new wave of. Um, of the angry young men came about, and I mean, for my money, I've always thought that 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 um, that 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 kind of writing was kind of weirder than it knew. I mean, for all I think it's been positioned after the fact as kind of narrowly narrowly concerned and vaguely xenophobic, um, <laughs> like and, and think of that what you will, but. But there is this sense where realism no longer works. Like when you read the work of Kingsley Amis, it's manic and weird and it, 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 it doesn't quite work. But I think, I think after the fact, um, in, in this, in, from the late 70s onwards, you know, when we think of the 60s, in other forms of art, we think of all these, um, you know, this, these experimental energies and uh, amongst um, uh, music and, um, and film and art, but, but not in writing. It's like, it's like, books kind of missed out like the the gatekeepers of culture wouldn't allow it whereas they would with other forms of art which is which is strange i think yeah one of the things i felt when i was researching my book on johnson and was surprised by was how detached the literary movement we're talking about uh felt from the other revolutions that were mm. happening in in both what you might call high culture and popular culture um you know, the late 50s, the early 60s, we've got the satire boom taking off. We've got Beyond the Fringe and uh, the beginnings of Private Eye. We've we've got pop music exploding. Mm. And uh, B.S. Johnson uh, in particular, who, who you might think would be very much uh, in, in tune with all this, um, actually felt, uh, I, I think, not just attached but slightly threatened by it in a way. Yeah. Because um, you know those those experimental renewing energies seem to be going into popular culture and and uh, and and not into the literary tradition that he felt uh, he was a part of. And for someone like him, I think the whole um, angry young man moment that you've just talked about must have seemed quite kind of disconcerting and threatening. Because in class terms, he was totally affiliated mm. with these people. But uh, you know, having a having a commitment to formal experimentation sort of wrong-footed him in a way. I mean, if a if a genre or a literary form like the novel has to renew itself periodically through through you know new injections of influences and so on, what was happening in the fifties was was not formal revolution but class revolution, and. Uh, if anything, formally, the novel regressed during during that decade, and the kind of innovations that people like Hepenstahl had been trying to introduce went on the back burner. So, uh, you know, maybe we're looking at a at a moment when, for a few years, um, those that that class revolution in fiction had to be absorbed, and then people like Johnson and Quinn could come along and say, "Okay, so we've got 
we, we've opened that up now. How can we how can we get back to looking to, to moving the novel on in terms of form? Yeah, I mean, I think that's particularly interesting. Yeah, certainly, when you read um, these novels by um, some of the people we've we've referenced already, and I, I think Quinn and Johnson um, are particularly interesting because they were. They were both born in the um, sort of early to mid thirties. I think Johnson is born in thirty three and Quinn in thirty six. Mm. So, as a sort of generation, they really should be quite in tune with kind of rock and roll and sort of counter um, cultural, like political movements. You know, moving from the sort of march to Aldermaston through mm. to the protests against the Vietnam War and mm. slightly beyond. Um, but, you know, you will not find anything of, like, Elvis or the Beatles in their books or not much of it. Um, Johnson actually wrote to the Beatles to Did try he? and get some money off them. Right. For what? Uh, for a film project, I think. <laughs> uh, and, uh, you know, he, he wrote to one of his friends afterwards in kind of tones of shame, really. Look how far I've fallen <laughs> writing to the Beatles, asking for money. <laughs> and he, uh, in, in the letter he wrote, he even managed to spell Paul McCartney's name wrong. So, so you know, it, it's, he, he, his finger wasn't on the pulse it's, I mean, of yeah. uh, popular music. And Johnson, you know, also kind of made films. And it's very hard to put Johnson into a kind of context, not just with the sort of films that came out of those sort of pop cultural movements of slightly underground films mm. by people like kind of Richard Lester or mm. Peter Whitehead or whoever. But it's hard to even put him in with a, a sort of stridently modernist group like the London Filmmakers Co-op, mm. who were also significantly more engaged with like pop culture, or at least pop yeah. music, than he was. Yeah. So he's, he's, he's a very strange figure in that respect. Um, I mean, what I think is interesting is that, you know, these, these authors, Quinn, Johnson, Happenstall, Brooke Rose and others, I think they were very much looking to... British and European modernism mm. that had preceded them by a generation in the case of the previous British modernism and they were sort of envious of this particularly French modernist writing mm. that had like reinvigorated itself immediately after the war in France um, and yes I think there are there are some interesting reasons there to do with class insecurity mm, I think on just on that um, the, the kind of pop front I think something that's um, that's thus far been kind of little known about Quinn but it's sort of kind of coming to light now is just how engaged she was with British pop art and I think it's really interesting that I mean she found a, she I think it's really interesting that she found a home there given that you know this this the difficulty of being in a position as a as a British writer and being working class and lower middle class and how how the novel is positioned within British culture and feeling stuck and not and and, and you know and to do with you know the the engagement with um the the rest of kind of pop contemporary culture at the time and yeah, she she kind of found a home there and drew drew a lot on that stuff. Although she, um, you know, she she was a secretary at the RCA. She's not an alumna of the RCA, but she was very much kind of stood within that force field during the sixties. You know, she ended up ghostwriting um, students' dissertations and things like that. And you you see that um, in her later work. You know, in something like Triptychs, which was her final novel, which is this crazy uh, kind of American road novel. She's absolutely draw, drawing upon that pop moment. You know, mm -hmm. there's all these resonances between her work and the work of British pop artists like the independent group um, def definitely so I think she found a way to reconcile the kind of like the impossible kind of high low tensions of British literary culture uh, but she had to go to the art world to do it you yeah. know and I, I think that's still true actually in British literary culture I think if you want to explore these sort of 
interdisciplinary connections you're much better off in in art circles than literary ones that's mm. certainly been my own experience um i mean johnson was interesting because he you know he he definitely worked a lot in kind of popular forms um you know in addition to making kind of underground films or experimental films um you know he also made a lot of agitprop but also did a lot of work in television um and you know he got some really interesting stuff into primetime television mm. towards the end of his life i think mean, i think one of the single best things to come out of this circle of writers is bs johnson's half an hour documentary for itv on dr samuel johnson yes yeah um which you know as francis booth points out both B.S. Johnson and Kingsley Amis were quite engaged with the sort of 18th century British literature yeah. that precedes the sort of real crystallising of the sort of realist novel in the 19th century. You know, Johnson had, you know, Jonathan, you talk about this very well in your book. Johnson had an actually quite small palette of references. He was really obsessed with James Joyce and Samuel Beckett. Uh, but he was also, you know, a very obviously huge fan of Lawrence Stern. He just mm. directly took the device of putting black pages into yeah. his first novel, Travelling People, from Tristan Shandy. Um, and I wonder if we could talk a bit more about, about those, those strands of, of Johnson's work. Um, this is a strong sense I have. Uh, Jennifer can say whether it's right or not of one of the differences between, between Quinn and, and Johnson, that Johnson, actually, when you come down to it, uh, was a traditionalist, he, but he just felt that he belonged to a tradition of actually Anglo-Irish writing, which was uh, kind of slightly set apart from the, from the mainstream. So he, he loved uh, the anatomy of melancholy, he loved Thomas Nash, uh, Swift, Stern, and then that tradition kind of peters out a little bit in, in English and resurfaces in the early 20th century with Joyce and Flann O'Brien and, and Samuel Beckett and so on. And... Uh, that to him was a, a strain, a minor strain, as he himself put it uh, in British writing, which he felt absolutely part of and uh, a continuation of. Um, maybe it's a maybe it's a gender constructed thing, but another strong difference I sense between him and Anne Quinn is it was important and indeed necessary for Johnson to have the security of what he saw as a theoretical framework for what he was doing. So he he wrote polemical journalism, uh, expounding his uh, his theories of the tradition he belonged to and, and why most other writers uh, writing at the time uh, had kind of fallen behind. And, uh, you know, he had, a, he had a rationale for what he was doing, that, and that even feeds through into each individual novel, I think, so he thinks, right, this is what the novel is going to be about. These are the formal choices I'm going to make. This is the, this is the framework I'm going to use. And the, the, uh, the form, the content gets kind of uh, pushed into it. Whereas with Anne Quinn, I get the sense of a much more kind of organic and spontaneous way of writing. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting with Quinn because she was um, far more immersed in the canon than you'd realise. So mm. she used to, on a little typewriter, she used to write out these reading lists because, you know, Quinn, Quinn left school, went to secretarial college, never went to university, uh, was about to start um, the creative writing course at UEA when she died. Um, but she, yeah, she would write out these reading lists and they're far more, um, you know, the classics right. than you'd realise. I mean, there's there's stuff like uh, she was really into the um, last year at Marion Bad, the film. She was really into the work of Natalie Sarout Sur um, and she was into 
into Sartre and Kafka and Camus. But she was also into the canon, right? Mm. She was going back and, and she was reading the canon, which you perhaps wouldn't expect. Um, but, but yeah, that was there too. The, the same is true of Rainer Heppenstall, who was particularly focused on French literature. He was an avid Francophile. Mm. Um, and, you know, like Quinn and Johnson to a point, he's a quite hard person to place into a class uh, background. You know, he grew up in Huddersfield and did a, a degree in modern languages. He got a third class degree in modern languages from the University of Leeds, uh, spent some time in Strasbourg. And, um, you know, he... He had a sort of vexed relationship with broadcasting, actually, because he he worked a lot for the BBC third program mm. um, in the 50s and did a lot of very interesting work, which is pretty much all now lost, sadly. And that would have been a very intriguing legacy for him, I think. You know, he dramatised um, Animal Farm for the first time by his, you know, his good friend George Orwell and, uh, you know, did a lot of work with, like, French... Um, Writers and poets, Jean Cotteau, Jacques Prévert, would get them all to record for the BBC. Um, and, you know, due to the fact that the BBC didn't really see any importance in archiving a lot of their work until a few decades later, these mm. these are no longer available to us. So was he was he a producer for, for the he third He was program? a producer and he wrote quite a lot as well. Um, and a handful of his radio scripts were published. Mm. Um, there was one where him and two other writers sort of meditated on Hamlet. Mm. For example, so uh, he himself was kind of one of the cultural gatekeepers in a yeah. way. We well, he we was absolutely, um, but he he is unusual as a cultural gatekeeper in that he was very very explicit in talking about the frustrations of that role and sort of being critical of his own place in it, but of the structures in general. Mm. Um, I mean, but he was also a very influential sort of figure for this group of authors partly because he he sort of took up another cultural gatekeeping position which was um sort of positioning himself as the sort of british ambassador to the nouveau roman mm. um you know he became good friends with sarot in particular who wrote in praise of his work alan rob grier um he he met around the time of the premiere of last year in marion bad the influential film that mm. rob grier made with alan renee um and he also published a volume of criticism in 1960 called The Fourfold Tradition, which looks at kind of innovative and kind of counter-innovative writing in Britain and France and mm. has, you know, four chapters, mm. one on each of those sort of categorizations that he makes. And he concludes the book by saying, actually, do you know what, like, English language writing isn't very interesting. The English language isn't very interesting. We should just replace it with French, uh, which I think maybe got some backs up in the UK. But um, I find him a very interesting uh, figure there, partly because you know he was very explicitly combining critical work, broadcasting work, and kind of novels. Um, and uh, maybe this is a good segue to talking about um, differences in the sort of stylistic approaches between some of these writers, but also their political approaches. I'm thinking of the fact that B.S. Johnson, um, and in particular Alan Burns, who wrote a novel um, about the Angry Brigade, who were the sort of British equivalent to, uh, you know, the Red Brigades in Italy or the Bader Meinhof group in Germany or the Weather Underground in the US and were, you know, much less violent than, than those groups, but nonetheless were, you know, the nearest thing Britain had to this sort of radical insurrectionary left wing group. 
also um, not not a direct inspiration necessarily, but a very strong presence at the back of B.S. Johnson's yes, probably most exactly. famous novel, Christie Mallory's own double entry, which is mm. which is about terrorism essentially, yes, absolutely, and, uh, uh, and about the sort of dynamics that lead to it. Yeah, um, yeah, and the sort of frustrations and. Um, so Burns and Johnson in particular wanted to sort of bring together formal and political radicalism, whereas Rainer Heppenstall, who I think started off as a socialist, his politics are very, very hard to pin down, uh, but Heppenstall kind of started off as a socialist and, you know, by the end of his life was espousing some really, really quite reactionary <laughs> positions. Um, although, you know, I, I looked through his sort of published journals and a lot of them just reminded me of the kind of things my granddad used to say about why he voted for Margaret Thatcher, which I think Heppenstall also lived long enough to do. Hmm. Uh, just as a, a quick nod back to our talk about popular culture, Rainer Heppenstall died in 1981, which was enough time for him to record his frustration that... Um, pretty much every new piece of music he heard had a sort of 4-4 beat with a kind of emphasised third beat. So he lived just long enough to get annoyed by Joy Division. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but sort of 1980-81 is, is an interesting sort of end point for mm. what we're talking about, but we'll come back to that. So maybe we could talk a bit about these sort of different attitudes to organisation, you know, politically, aesthetically. Yeah, I think um, Quinn used to say in interviews that she uh you know she used to claim that she wasn't political um and you know her books aren't explicitly explicitly political in the way that we've talked about you know alan burns or someone but i think they're absolutely imp implicitly so i mean quinn's thing throughout all of her work is always this like profound dissatisfaction with quotidian life right and uh her thing is is kind of this 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 kind of manic exploration of kind of the possibilities of 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 kind of living a free life you know at, at, at first um she's exploring that within the bounds of the uk but then she you know her books are about these kind of like travels of the the mind and the map if you will or whatever and um and i think it's it, it's kind of worth saying that that freedom is never just a benign thing for for Quinn. You know, there's this kind of weird undertow in a lot of her books. Um, you know, nothing is ever what it seems in an Anne Quinn novel. But there's this there's these kind of um, intimations of sort of dictatorship and tyranny, especially in a novel like Passages that lie under, that lies underneath. You know, there's this kind of wider p political context that never really fully makes itself known, but it's always kind of encroaching and is mirrored in in you know these very kind of claustrophobic hothouse relationships that the book is really focusing on but for her you know um she she's profoundly dissatisfied by by everyday life but freedom as well you know it's not as if she's the kind of 60s author that's like yeah liberation is great man mm. like she, she's she's always concerned to to say in the end that sort of tyranny and, and and absolute liberation are kind of the same thing um so i think although she's not explicitly engaged in the way that you've described some of the writers she absolutely implicitly so she she is yeah um Johnson was quite uh, was quite directly engaged in politics. He was uh, an old-fashioned socialist, a Benite socialist, I suppose, in seventies terms. Probably a Corbynite socialist in uh, in con in contemporary terms. And uh, he he made agitprop films, which were which were screened uh, in factories and so on, as uh, as polemics against various bits of government legislation. Um, he campaigned and canvassed for his local Labour MP uh, and this sort of thing. Um, so the politics are much more obviously inscribed into his writing than they than they are into uh, Anne Quinn's. Um, 
you know what what in a way I find uh, lacking in in uh, in Johnson's politics and in his outlook uh, generally, and we haven't really touched upon in this in this discussion yet, uh, is that he he had very little sense. I suspect Dan Quinn had more sense of what was happening in America in terms of politics and in terms of literature and uh, culture more broadly. Um, Johnson was a tremendously British writer. Somebody who re reviewed my book about him described him as the Hammersmith Beckett. And this is, uh, this is, this is a, great, a great phrase to, dis to describe B.S. Johnson, I think. Uh, he, had a, he, kind of ha he had an instinctive and very vehement uh, anti-Americanism. Mm. Um, which, which really kind of, although he was aware of what uh, Burroughs was doing and was influenced by Burroughs' cut-up technique, cut techniques, I think, more, more and more, actually, particularly in his last uh, uncompleted book, See the Old Lady Decently. Uh, outside that, he didn't just not have much knowledge of what was going on in America, but he, mm. he, had, he had no interest in it. Yeah, well, for most of uh, Quinn's writing life, she actually lived in the States, so she got her advance for Berg and immediately spent it on a plane ticket, and she went over and um, she got um, the D.H. Uh, Lawrence Fellowship in New Mexico, uh, various other fellowships. She lived in New Mexico. She spent some time in Mexico proper. She lived in um, in uh, San Francisco. She uh, visited um, New York a lot. And um, she really found a home there. I mean, mm. she used to call herself a poet. And everyone that she hung out with, well, you know, the people that she hung out with were people like um, Robert Creeley, Robert Sward. She, yeah. she, she was kind of um, immersed in this. She went to the Berkeley Poetry Congress. Uh, she was kind of immersed in this American language poetry scene. And, uh, can, and can you see her novels changing under that uh, under that influence, do you think? Yeah, well, something like Berg um, is uh, very English. You yeah. know, it's very mm. much part of that Patrick Hamilton-y, yes. Hammersmith-y, British it's noir. It's got a great sort of dissection of British end of the pier yeah. culture. Yeah, well. yeah, yeah, absolutely. But um, following that, you know, when she when she um, when she she goes to the states, and you know, she spent most of the time, most of her time during during her writing life there. You can see things changing, but actually, weirdly. Um, at this weird interface between the nouveau roman, which you know you really see, begin to see the in, the influence of that in something like three or passages, and then the the, the poetic aspect of well as well, I think, uh, which is strange. And then something like triptychs is you know it's full burrows, mm -hmm. it's full it's her going full mm. burrows. Um, but I think it's interesting the the, the kind of um, reflex anti-Americanism amongst British intellectuals during that time yeah. that that someone like Johnson shared that Quinn, Quinn didn't have you know mm. she loved the states uh, but 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 again still in in her writing you know you have this sense of of um you know especially when she spent time in New Mexico these kind of hot brutal landscapes and the kind of sp the spaciousness and the possibility there but you still get this nostalgia for like rainy old horrible vegetated Britain and you know this sense <laughs> of will I ever be able to go back this sort of troubled weird nostalgia that yeah. she has yeah I don't think yeah. there's a more British sentence in the English language than what Johnson says in The Unfortunates when he says, deep in my heart, I know I love chips. <laughs> and, uh, I mean, I, I love chips as well. And, you know, what, what can I say? That's, that's wonderful. And yeah, I mean, The Unfortunates is one of, one of my favourite works to come out of... Um, come out of this circle as well. Um, I want to just move the discussion on uh, briefly. Um, you're listening to Sweet 212 on Resonance 104.4 FM. I'm here with Jennifer Hodgson and Jonathan Coe, and we're talking about a sort of circle of, like, British 
quote-unquote experimental authors who were sort of active mostly in the 1960s and 70s. Um, so I want to talk here about, you know, how successful these writers were, sort of critically and commercially. I know we've touched on it a bit. Um, certainly Johnson hated the term experimental. And there was a lot of antipathy um, that we have talked about from, from critics towards these authors, um, which sort of polarised a lot of the discussion. You know, the, sort of the whole idea of experimental literature, quote-unquote, was, was often kind of derided. And I think in turn that often forced advocates of kind of exploratory or innovative literature to defend things that, you know, amongst themselves they might not have defended so rigorously, things that maybe didn't work on the terms in which they were written. Um, well, I suppose Johnson kind of painted himself into a bit of a corner in that respect because, uh, you know, you you can almost say, well, you started it yeah. because he, uh, he, you know, he, he was the one who uh, would... S with Albert Angelo, his second novel, he actually sent out uh, letters to reviewers saying, uh, "You know, look, you're probably too stupid to notice this, but this mm. is what I'm. This is what I'm doing in this mm. book. This is why there are holes cut in the pages. Mm. This is why there are parallel columns in mm. in one of the chapters." Publishers loved all that, didn't <laughs> <they>? <laughs> and uh, you know, in a way, because he had quite an because he himself had quite a confrontational, antagonistic personality, mm. he he thrived on this very notion that there was that there was one uh, set of writers ranged up against mm. another and, and positioning himself and taking sides. Uh, you know, maybe maybe in the long run that was a kind of unhelpful thing to do. I mean, you look at some of the names on this list, as you say, like Anthony Burgess and Angela Carter, they, uh, you know, some of what they did is much more radical than anything that, mm. that, that B.S. Johnson mainstream. did, and they went mainstream. Yeah, no, I think it's interesting because I think, you know, the, the virulence with which this was argued, you know, the idea of experimental writing posing a kind of existential threat to us, you know, it's like, it, it, it seems ridiculous now to think of, ex of experimental writing in those terms, but I think, you know, they weren't, ar they were, they weren't arguing about novels. They were arguing about the culture and the possibilities for culture. Mm. You know, they were arguing against this narrowly conceived, vaguely xenophobic, impossibly sort of preserved in aspic sort of sort of culture, and they were trying to open up the doors and you know let some air in. So I think it's interesting that the, the kind of the kind of anger and hostility that this the, the, the word experimental generated then, and there's a bit of that now. But you know, the idea that experimental writing is really all that much of a threat these days mm. it seems ridiculous. It's like the we've, sealed we've knot. We've got bigger problems now. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and. And it is notable that, you know, this shift back towards these discussions about, you know, what the aesthetics of the novel should be. Yeah. You know, they 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 sort of pick up new life in the sort of 60s and early 70s at a time of relative political calm to the yeah. rest of the 20th century. But what we talk about, especially in Britain, I think, what we talk about when we're talking about novels is the culture mm. and national identity, because the novel has been used so often as a kind of vehicle for presenting some kind of mythic idea of especially of Englishness rather than Britishness of Englishness and so that's why those um those battles are so closely fought and I think that's eased somewhat but you know until until quite recently th there is still a kind of um hostility towards experimental writing well yeah and I mean the the national identity of of some of these writers is is really interesting you know I've already talked about Heppenstall being being very 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 pro-French um but you know you also have Stefan Themerson who was a filmmaker in Poland with his partner Franciszka and 
you know moved to Britain during the war and made some propaganda films um, during the war, The Eye in the Ear and Calling Mr. Smith. Um, Ava Fiege, I think, also came to Britain as a refugee. Mm. Um, Christine Brooke Rose. Uh, Ended I up think teaching had, in Paris. Yeah, exactly. After she um, published. France. Yeah, she published through No Publisher Would Touch Her for Seven Years and she had to move to Paris. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and, you know, there was a sort of perception, I think, that France was the place you had to go to do that. I think, you know, both in a positive way from from the type of writer we're talking about, but, you know, also this long-standing tradition, you can go back to the sort of 19th century, even earlier, of, you know, kind of sniffy critics saying, look, if you want to do this, go to France, don't do it here. Mm. Uh, when, but, um, when Johnson won the Somerset Maugham Award, for which the money had to be spent on three months travelling, mm. he didn't uh, kind of go around the Far East or go to America, he just went to Paris for three months and right. hung out with Beckett, because this is what you do if you're a writer yeah. of, of this sort, you know. Quinn did the same. She went to Paris. She talks about it. Uh, she went to Paris and uh, she got there, you know, full of excitement and expectation and spent, uh, I, th I think, you know, the amount of time in a bed sit with the, with the door closed, totally miserable. <laughs> it's, it's noticeable that, um, you know, these writers were often more dependent on sort of literary prizes and things like Arts Council Awards than they mm. were on sales. Mm. Um, partly because the sort of infrastructure... Uh, by which they might, you know, kind of work in another career to support themselves didn't really exist in maybe quite the same way it does now. I mean, Rainer Heppenstall, you know, complained long and loud about doing his work for the BBC because it didn't really give him much time to write fiction. Mm. And, of course, you know, that was a job that, you know, many people would really fall over themselves for. Mm. Uh, you know, producer at the third programme, it's quite a prestigious and creative role. Uh, but these people were sort of more dependent on literary prizes uh, and also just like a handful of publishers and I'm thinking of two in particular who I think had had a level of rivalry which is John Calder and Peter Owen uh, and most of these authors published at least partly with them P.S. Uh, Johnson was sort of you know notorious for falling out with publishers I think somebody joked at his funeral that Johnson clearly loved publishers because he worked <laughs> with so many of them uh, and in the um in the, the fantastic programme on Samuel Johnson, which is available on the, the BFI DVD of Johnson's works, uh, there's a very striking moment where he just flashes up a title card written in that sort of 18th century style saying, publishers are parasites. <laughs> um, <laughs> but maybe we, you know, Calder obviously published Beckett's novels and translations of the Nouveau Roman. Uh, and maybe we could just talk a little bit about the importance of, of Calder. Like we've only got about sort of a few minutes left yeah but. it's worth saying that Quinn was a, a Boyars author actually she was she was p published and her career was managed by Marion Boyars who mm. of course was in partnership with with Calder uh, during the 60s um, but yeah I think I think being part of that stable you know we, we began the program by talking about uh, the you know the lack of kind of coherence and the lack of um, them being a kind of united avant-garde group as might happen somewhere like France to a certain extent in the States also was happening in somewhere like Italy or, or Germany but in as much as that existed uh, the Calder and Boyars imp imprint provided a kind of stable yeah Jeff Nuttall said that the avant-garde in Britain at that time sort of happened in bookshops rather than anywhere else hmm. Um, I think, you know, uh, Johnson, Calder would have been the natural home in a way for B.S. Johnson, particularly as he had such a, such a worship of Samuel Beckett, and this is where Beckett had such a kind of good and loyal publisher's relationship. But Johnson really had no intention of being published by somebody like that. He, uh, one of the things he noticed about the, uh, the angry young men and uh, writers like Alan Slitter was they were making a lot of money off, the, off their books, and he wanted a piece of that action. 
Uh, and, you know, his when he wrote Travelling People, he didn't go to John Calder. He went to an agent called George Greenfield, who represented writers like Enid Blyton and uh, uh, <laughs> Alison McLean, I think, and people, and, and, people, and people like this. And, uh, you know, he, he wanted... Um, he could never quite reconcile this contradiction that he had this uh, pure high modernist conception of where the novel should be going in, in terms of formal innovation and so on. But at the same time, you know, he wanted Alan Silito's yeah. sales, and that yeah, was all, that was always going to be a, a hard one to square. Okay, um, we've not got long left. I think we've got about another five, five or six minutes. So sorry to cut you off, Chen, mm-hmm. but. Um, I think we should we should sort of close the show by talking about you know what we feel their legacy is, mm. um, you know the process of rehabilitating writers is a long one. It's not always a successful one. With B. S. Johnson, you can trace a line from Philip Chew's um, academic monograph in the late nineties, through to and sort of academic conferences on Johnson, through to Paul Tickell's film of Christy Mowry's own double entry, which came out in two thousand and one and Jonathan, your own book in 2004, and then the fully re- more or less complete reissue of Johnson's work with the notable exception of his poetry um, in the intervening time. You know, with Quinn, it's happened in a slightly stranger order, I think, and it's largely been led by a US publisher. With Rainer Heppenstall, there's been periodic reissues of mm. The Blaze of Noon, um, you know, his novel about sort of told by a blind masseur, uh, from 1939, the most recent reissue was 2011 or 12 with my introduction. Um, so, you know, these these authors have been periodically in and out of print, in and out of fashion. And I wondered if we could speak of, you know, any sort of notable influence that they've had on contemporary writing. Mm. It's uh, it's difficult with Quinn to um, to kind of point to her legacy because, you know, I hear echoes of Quinn throughout lots and lots of contemporary writing, you know, going from someone like Kathy Acker, whom she was a kind of like sort of cosmic sister to, and, you know, they would have got brilliantly, I'm sure, through to Chris Krause, through to contemporary writing now, you know, someone like Emma McBride, Mm -hmm. uh, someone like Claire Louise Bennett. I find it, I find echoes of Quinn all over the shop. But the problem with with kind of trying to designate a legacy for her is that often these writers haven't read Quinn. You know, it's less (laughs) a legacy and more a kinship. I find Mm -hmm. it unthinkable that they can't have read Quinn. But, they haven't, but you know they're drawing from the same kind of influences themselves. From the, the, they're, they're they're kind of you know part of the same sort of hidden tradition. But in terms of like a legacy in absolute terms, you know hopefully uh, more people will start reading Quinn now. But historically they they haven't. Um, yeah, I mean I think uh, you can you can see B. S. Johnson's presence in all sorts of uh, unexpected places whether it's to do with uh, direct uh, influence or not. Uh, I think, you know, I think you can see it in John McGregor. You can see it in Richard Beard. Um, John Lanchester wrote the introduction to Christy Mowry's own double entry. Uh, Zadie Smith was given a copy of The Unfortunates as a, as a birthday present by Harry Kunzrew, I think. I mean, there's a, there's a great awareness and respect uh, for what Johnson did, but that's, uh, you, you, that, that's not to say that people are, uh, you know, Directly trying to replicate his kind of experiments, um, I, it just feels to me that this is a good moment to be uh, to be looking at Anne Quinn again and, and bringing her back into the public domain because the kind of antagonism we're talking about that obtained in the 1960s with with experimentalists and traditionalists lined up on opposite sides mm. of the fence 
seems to be dissolving a little bit at the moment, yeah. partly, as you say, through the, uh, through the work of uh, independent publishers and so on. And, uh, you know, Jen mentioned Emma McBride. Um, you've got, uh, you know, Will Self writing mm. a long-running Joycean mm. trilogy project. And, uh, you know, nobody kind of bats an eyelid and anymore. Yeah, and I think, I mean... The internet, and particularly social media, has been mm. quite important as well because I think, you know, we've we've talked a lot in this show about the the lining up of kind of quote unquote experimental writers on one hand mm. and critics on the other. In the US, they were the same people a lot of the time, and that was quite integral to, you know, the US of Thomas Pinch and Kurt Vonnegut, whoever, mm. you know, getting a sort of intelligent and engaged reception of their works. Whereas over here, it it, it was much more so. And I think you know something like Twitter in particular and digital criticism is mm. breaking a lot of that down. Yeah, um, I, th I mean, I, I, my, my take is that I think the gatekeepers of culture have always like radically underestimated people's appetite for stuff that's interesting, yeah, people's curiosity. Mm. And I think what's, what's happened is that that's kind of, you know, Twitter or something like that, or, the, you know, digital technologies and generally break, uh, breaking that down. And people are looking backwards as well as forwards now. Jonathan, any concluding remarks? Yeah, I mean, just, just off the back of that we've we've kind of uh, danced around definitions of of the word experimental I, I think part of the problem is that people equate experimentalism with difficulty mm. and there's actually nothing difficult about johnson's novels or or ann quinn's or writing really. for that matter no yeah uh you know just because there's a little bit of funny typography on the pages sometimes and, and that kind of thing Actually, uh, you know, these are all writers, as we've said, who are concerned with consciousness and uh, replicating and reimagining the way we think and feel and perceive things. And, uh, you know, they're, they're, they do it in ways which are open to everybody. Wonderful. That's a fantastic place to end, I think. Uh, I've been Juliet Jakes. This has been Sweet 212. Uh, thanks to Jennifer and Jonathan. And we'll see you next month. Take care. Goodbye. This program has been brought to you by Resonance 104.4 FM. If you liked what you heard and want to support our work, please make a donation at fundraiser.resonance.fm.